we're going to get interactive really quick. So a show of hands. How many people, either before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving, cleaned out their fridge? It's okay. I see that hand. Yes. And if you don't raise your hand, that's all right as well. Sometimes when you're cleaning out the fridge, and I'm never the one that is like the catalyst of this in our home. <laughs> like, I lived with like six guys in an apartment for a while, so fridges can look way worse. Uh, but whenever the fridge does get cleaned out and I end up joining the process at some point, there are strange items that are found in the fridge in your home during this process. And in our house, they are all there because of me. Because at some point, I decided I was going to cook a meal, and I find this thing online, and it calls for fish oil or something along those lines that is obscure. And maybe I could have found something in our own home that would replace it, but I'm like, I need fish oil. Uh, so I go and buy that. Cat has no idea that I bought fish oil, or I bought this other strange vegetable that I only needed one of, but I bought like a bushel or whatever it is, right? And it's there, and then all of a sudden it goes bad, or it's expired, and, and she's like, where did this come from, right? There are weird things that show up in our fridges, but let me tell you, the weirdest fridge ever on the planet Earth, I, I will go to bat for this, is the church fridge. The church fridge is the strangest of places. Like, whoever cleans out that fridge, bless you. Jewels in your crown in heaven because that thing is terrible. The pantry as well. And it's because there's a place or there's a ministry called Youth Group that often does things with food. Um, food in games that's very weird. They have meals together, sometimes with a theme, where all of a sudden there's sauces upon sauces upon sauces that are all so strange, and they take out a whole row in the fridge because we had some sort of like chicken nugget like feast together. Um, there's stuff from youth group uh, because it was someone's birthday and something was brought, but also churches have like soup and bread dinners, and someone like attends it for the first time, and they want to contribute, so they cut up green onions, but they cut up green onions for like 400 people and not 70. And so we've got like cut green onions in the fridge that go on for weeks. And like, what, what is that smell, right? That's coming out of the fridge. How do I know this? Well, I've been at church for a bit now, worked at a church. And I also want to confess something to you this morning. Uh, there's oftentimes I forget to pack a lunch. Or there's times on Wednesdays where I miss dinner because I work from like 10 to 10 and don't have time to go home to eat. And my stomach starts growling like right around like 2 o'clock on those Wednesdays or right around noon on those lunch days. I'm like, you know, I wonder. And then it's like I teleport and I'm next to the church fridge just to see maybe there's some sort of interesting concoction of like green onions and sriracha and like tortilla chips that I can put together somehow to have a meal. And this has not just happened once in 13 years. This has not just happened twice. We'll say it's at least three, um, maybe more. But scrounging, finding something where it's like, who would have thought licorice and like an apple would go together? But that's Matt's lunch today. Um, and this is not a plea for you to give me food. I'm fine. I just am forgetful and lazy. Um, but every time I have that, right, whatever weird concoction I put together, it doesn't actually, it's not a meal, right? It doesn't actually fill me up. I usually feel pretty bad afterwards, too, right? Who knows how long that thing was there that I ate? I don't. It's always a gamble. It's like going to Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> I never feel good about it, and usually I'm riddled with regret as well. 
that why did I do that? Why didn't I just wait until I got home and actually ate something of substance? But I find myself doing it again and again and again. I wonder if we relate to that. But let's take food out of the equation. Is there something that we go back to again and again and again? Knowing it doesn't satisfy. It riddles us with regret. And it makes us feel even more empty than when we consumed it. This season during Advent, we're talking about food. Our theme is the feast. And with that, hungering and thirsting for the Messiah. Scripture uses food and drink more than I realize to talk about, to be a physical picture of our spiritual reality when it comes to longing, desire, hunger, feasting, fasting. And we also wanted this, like why the feast? We wanted this to be something that wasn't just a Sunday morning thing, that built into every day we have three reminders at least with three meals each day where we wake up and we're hungry or partway through the day we're thirsty or we're waiting for dinner and that hunger builds up again and there's that anticipation or the anticipation of that birthday meal or that restaurant that you and your family always go to over the holidays, that anticipation that builds up, that longing, that desire to then feast when you're finally there. And so during this season, we have three reminders every day as our stomachs growl or as we're parched that it's a reminder to hunger and thirst for God, to hunger and thirst for the promised Messiah. Last week, we sat in the reality as Greg preached that we are a people who hunger and thirst for God, that apart from God, we are starving for him. He quoted Pascal, who talks about this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. And when we look out at the world, we see a world that is starving, starving for joy, starving for hope, starving for love, starving for peace. But will it be found in God? And we can look out, but my guess is we can look within, too either circumstantially or even a season that feels mundane and it feels like we're starving for those same things. The question that we ask today, though, is when that hunger or that thirst kicks up, what do we fill ourselves with? While I may be hungry for hope, do I fill myself with a meal that will truly satisfy Or what happens when I find a replacement meal to quench my thirst, to satisfy my hunger? What happens when I go to the church fridge? Today we talk about the counterfeit feast, a meal that promises to satisfy and yet only increases our starvation. The Bible opens up with a God who creates, that he breathes out his word, 
And we see a galaxy formed. We see the earth formed. We see water and land separated. We see stars and the moon and the planets. And we see animals. We see a garden and we see people. And all of this takes place in Genesis chapter 1 as we have this like cosmic level bird's eye view of God creating out of his goodness, out of the self-giving union of love in the Trinity. Then chapter 2 in Genesis happens, and if you have your Bibles, open it up to Genesis 2. We'll be in Genesis 2, 3, and 4 for a portion of our time this morning. But in Genesis 2, we kind of get in this like little bit more like narrowed focus or honed-in focus in God's creation, where we see specifically what's happening as God is creating this garden. And also we get some more details when he creates the man and the woman, what's taking place there as well. Genesis 2, chap- or chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Hang on to that. In the middle, two trees. Earlier this morning, Jordan, Rebecca, and Paige, as they did our Advent reading, read this passage in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. I'm diving in partway. Verse 16, God says this to Adam. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I think oftentimes when we hear this section of scripture, when we hear this story told, we really hyper-focus, and not to say that we shouldn't, but we focus on the one thing God said that we shouldn't eat, right? That they shouldn't have eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But let's stop for a second, because the Bible opens up, and after God creates and creates man, he says, hey, guess what? I have created a feast for you. Eat from any tree. There is one that you should not eat from. But eat from any other tree that I've given. Look at all that I've laid out for you to feast upon. Which I think would entail then also this other tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of life. Because later, spoilers, I'm so sorry, when we see Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden... Part of it is to protect them from eating from the tree of life so that they would not do that. So this other tree in the middle of the garden is on limits and everything else other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's if, or so it would seem that maybe there is a theme that Genesis is setting up for us in the very first pages of Scripture, that at the center, at the middle, There is a choice. There is a tree that contains life. And there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it contains death. And the question is, what tree will you eat from? That is the question to Adam and Eve. And as we see through the theme of all scripture, it continues to be a choice that God lays before his people. What tree will you choose, life or death? But in the garden, there's a deceiver. 
there's a tempter, an enemy who's in rebellion against God and is hell-bent on stealing, killing, and destroying the life that God has given his image bearers. And this is what he aims to do when he arrives in the center of this garden, near this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And his first deception, the first lie that he spews out, what is it? He offers a meal. Genesis 3, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When God said, don't eat from this tree, it brings death. The enemy says, it doesn't bring death. It's not that bad. This is actually good. Maybe you're missing something that you actually need. God's holding something back from you. He's holding back something good. And the only way for that void to be filled is for you to take and to eat. And they do. They take and they eat, they eat, and the eyes of both of them are opened, as it says in Genesis 3. They realize that they're naked and their paradigm shifts because now they are not living on God's terms, trusting God's ways of what is good, but instead they are deciding for themselves between what is good and what is evil, and that brings guilt and that brings shame. And so what they do is they try to cover up and they try to hide from God. And as strange as this origin story may sound to us with trees that have fruit that represent life or have life or knowledge of good and evil in them and people eating from them and then a snake that's talking in this garden, as strange as this may sound, it also sounds all too familiar. Choosing not to trust what God says is good not eating from the life that God has, but instead choosing something that is pleasing to the eye. Believing that God might be holding out on me. Wanting to decide for myself what's good and what's evil. And instead of receiving the feast that God has laid before us, we too eat this counterfeit meal. Thinking it will fill a void, and yet it leaves us riddled with shame guilt. We cover up, we hide, and the emptiness only increases. And if you're anything like me, you know this all too well. And it starts with a lie. It always starts with a lie. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see the nuance that's there? God said, don't eat from this tree. And the serpent says, man, he's holding out any tree from you, shifting God's words slightly to cause some distortion, to cause confusion, doubt in the hearers. You won't die. Maybe even the serpent thinking, that fruit will touch your lips and you're not going to drop to the floor. But as the fruit touched Adam and Eve's lips, they did spiritually die as sin entered 
their paradigm separated from relationship with God. And they would physically die. Their days were numbered. The lie that God cannot be trusted, that God hasn't given us everything that we need, that God is somehow keeping good things from you, that it's better for us to be in charge than God. Those lies continue to permeate our appetite, our minds and our hearts, causing us to have a distorted view of God, a distorted view of the world, a distorted view of self. And it leaves us hungry. The word Genesis means origin or beginning. And yes, we should think of Genesis and we should think of the origin, the beginning of creation. As God involves people now in this relationship with himself. But also, we see the beginning. We see an origin of themes that we're going to see throughout the rest of Scripture. Themes that we will also see in our own stories as well. And we see this same story take place in different scenarios, but with the same themes that there is a choice. There is this meal of life that is laid before God's people, and there is this meal that leads to death set before God's people. And over and over again, we see them believe a lie and seek sustenance from this counterfeit meal that leads them to destruction. The very next chapter in Genesis 4, if you want to turn there, just one generation removed from Adam and Eve after they're kicked out of the garden, we find their sons Cain and Abel in a story that has some interesting similarities. For one, this story starts with food. As Abel and Cain both bring food offerings to God, Abel bringing the best of his flock, a plump, fat sheep, where it's this feast as he offers with joy to God the best of what he has. And what it reads in Genesis 4, when Cain brings him his offering, he brings some fruit, some produce. He went through at least the motions of this offering. We're not sure the full, the full posture of what's taking, but it's clear that Abel's posture of his heart in this offering was pleasing to God. And when Cain sees this, that Abel's offering was pleasing, he's jealous and he's angry. And then God stops him in his tracks. And he lays before him a choice. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Here is this choice laid out again before God's people. Do what is right Follow me and my ways. Do not act on those things in your heart that you have bent towards your brother Abel. And if you do so, you will live. But if you do what is wrong, know that sin is there. And it seeks to devour you. That word crouching is like this lion who is hiding in the shadows ready to pounce. This monster that's lurking beneath the bed or in the closet ready to come out 
and devour. We have food, we have a choice, and we have a monster in the midst of this decision. Sounds similar to two trees and a serpent all over again. And just as Cain's parents fail, Cain fails. He gives in to the desire of his heart. He doesn't trust God's words. And we see death come through the fall of mankind, that he murders his brother, that he, just one generation removed from perfection in the garden, the first murder takes place. That this counterfeit meal truly leads to death as God said it would. And not just death for the one who consumes it, but it spreads death to others as well. And this counterfeit feast does not simply want to be consumed by you, but as God says here to Cain, this is seeking to consume you. You will consume it, but it will consume you in return. It distorts our view. It distorts our desires. It distorts how we view others, the people around us. It distorts how we view self. And it always leads to death. If you fast forward to Exodus, God has just set his people free from slavery. They've just walked through the Red Sea as God splits the waters and they walk on dry land. And then as they're being chased by an enemy, the waves come in crashing, destroying the enemy, setting God's people free. This ultimate act of salvation that they can trust in their God who saves. And then they go into the wilderness. And how quickly it seems that they forget. The passage that we're about to dive into only takes place two months, 15 days later than being delivered from Egypt. And we see the people begin to grumble. And when I hear that word grumble, complain, I think of myself and how when I grumble or complaining, it is clear that I am not trusting in God. I'm just not, right? Like if I believe like whatever situation is before me, if I think complaining is a better option, than seeking what God has for me in the midst of that. Like, man, I am not trusting that he has good spread out before me. And this is what they do. They grumble. And God stops them as they start grumbling about water. He provides water for them, and then he sets out a choice in front of them. He says, hey, you can trust me. Right? You can trust me in my ways and my word. And if you do, this is in Exodus 15, if you do, I won't bring upon you the same disasters that I brought upon Egypt. But if you choose what is wrong, you will receive jud judgment. I am a just God. Exodus 16, after they hear this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. What a depressing name. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. 
their view is so distorted by this idea of this counterfeit feast, their lack of trusting God's word that God will provide, that his life will sustain them, that they can call upon the Lord and that he has set them free to set them free to live, to be a new people, to be his people. But instead they grumble and they complain and they even say, guess what? You know what, Moses? This is so bad. It was better to be a slave. I would rather be a slave than this month and 15-day period that we've been in because I'm that hungry. And I don't know who came to them and said this, but it had to be a dude that misremembered so badly that was just picturing pots of meat. Like, no lady would be like, oh, yeah, I just dream of pots of meat, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> hopefully there's something else in that meal. But he's just, like, thinking of these pots of meat and, like, we had it better. That's not true. Do they not remember how they were tortured? Do they not remember the oppression of the Egyptians crying out to God for hundreds of years to be set free? but they want their pots of meat that existed. Claiming that it would have been better to die than to be saved. And isn't it interesting, again, this revolves around food. I remember before I was following Jesus, um, it was my college years, year, um, <laughs> subtle jab at self, uh, I remember I had, I, there was these actions that I was doing over and over again. And, and you know, for those of you that were in a spot at some point in your life where you remember not following Jesus as well, and there were things that you were doing that you knew that weren't good, and you didn't have a category for it like conviction, or you didn't have a category of like, I know God says this, right? But there was just something that felt off or wrong. And I remember laying in, and this had been going on for me for some time, and, and I kept not feeling like this, these things that I was doing, I was gaining what I hoped from it. Like it made me feel emptier, actually. And I remember laying in bed late at night, and, it, and there was this choice laid before me. Like, like I clearly remember my own thought process in this moment when I'm 19 years old. I remember going, man, I could stop doing these things. And I, don't, I actually don't know what to replace it with, but it's got to be better than what I'm feeling right now. Or option two is I wonder if I could just keep doing them enough that I become numb. Numb to the pain. That at least that feeling of it not being right or bad would just go away at some point. If I just do it enough to convince myself at least that it's not bad, maybe it will never be good, but numb sounds better. That's what I chose. The more willingly we dive into this counterfeit feast, this unsatisfying meal, the more our taste buds are warped for things that don't bring life, for things that bring death, for things that we think will bring hope and love, will bring peace and success will bring value and worth and yet they leave us feeling empty like i've thought about this isn't in my notes but i've thought about Gollum uh in lord of the rings and the ring right the one ring that he has and how he just like desires after it, and it warps him it distorts his physical being even but the ring abandons Gollum. 
it does not care about him. It consumes him and spits him out like he's nothing. And that's what this counterfeit feast does to us. It does not care for us in the ways that we want it to. It does not care for us like only our God can. As the Bible continues, God's people continually reject his words, his ways, his life, and instead run after an assortment of counterfeit feasts. Seeking autonomy from God, worshiping idols, even hijacking, hijacking practices that God had given them to remember him, to abide in him, feasts, celebrations, Sabbaths, all of them distorting those things for selfish gain. And much of the prophets, we see these spokespeople on God's behalf coming to Israel, coming to God's people, and calling out their appetite for sin and for evil And God calls his people to come back to him. Return to me. Leave these things behind. Amos chapter 4, verse 6. God says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and it dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me. Like God sees their problems spiritually. And so he's like, let me discipline my people in this way. I will remove food. I will remove drink, similar to the people going into the wilderness in Exodus. Maybe then as their stomach is growling, as their mouth is parched, as their crops are dead, they will call out to me and say, God, help, save me. But that doesn't work. They have so feasted on this counterfeit meal that they are they have aligned themselves with I will find any other way to be saved or to be made right or to be made whole or to be satisfied than going to God. Amos 5. God again is saying, this is what you have done. In turning from me, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Not only are these people physically hungering and starving, but they are oppressing the lesser person, the weak person, the marginalized person, and causing them to be hungry too. Death spreads from one to another. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. You've sought refuge in all these other things other than me. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent, take bribes, and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. The choice. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. It's the same story over and over and over again. There's a lie that is believed that there is life outside of what God provides. The people feast on this meal They reject God's life. They choose life on their own terms, and sin and death spread throughout creation. And 
God demands judgment for this, justice for this. And the Old Testament ends. And if you've read from start to finish, there should be a cry of our hearts that says, when will this stop? Can anyone see this counterfeit feast for what it really is? Will anyone choose life that only comes from God? Will anyone trust in God's word? In our Advent reading this morning, in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, I think we have a slide of that. God recognizes food and drink didn't get their attention. So he's like, there's going to be another famine that's coming. My words, my words of life are going to be withheld from you. Maybe then you will see your need for me and return to me. And where our Old Testament ends in Malachi, 400 years go by, and there is a famine of God's word. And people are starving. They are hungry, yet they are still delving into these counterfeit feasts. And then one night, in a town called Bethlehem, where a promised Messiah had been prophesied to be born. A baby's born. And there's angels that are rejoicing and singing out. There's a star that later guides wise men to see him. Could it be that this child who's born would be the one that rejects the counterfeit feast? The one who would confront the deceiver be able to master sin that seek to devour people? Would he be the one to walk in God's ways and bring good news, not death, to mankind? As you continue to read in Matthew, you follow Jesus. And you see later Jesus is baptized before his earthly ministry starts and it's a scene that was referred to a couple weeks ago where as Jesus is baptized, the sky is ripped open. The voice of the Father calls out from the heavens saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. We have the same scene that opens our Bibles in Genesis 1. The Word in flesh, Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, creating as they hover over the waters and breathe life into the world. We see at Jesus' baptism, there's a new creation that's coming into the world. There is a way for a new humanity to be formed. But if you keep reading, you get to Matthew 4. And right after Jesus is baptized, Matthew writes this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We again get a similar scene. 
here is that same tempter, that deceiver, that monster lurking in the bushes. And Jesus, like his people in Exodus, is in the wilderness. He's in the desert. And he confronts this enemy. And he's offered a choice. We don't see the enemy offer him two options. He offers him one option. Eat this. Here's a meal that I offer you. Turn these stones into bread. You have the power. If you are who you say you are, do this on your own terms to show this power, to satisfy your hunger, not to give glory to God. The enemy goes on to tempt him two other ways, but isn't it fascinating that the first thing that Jesus is tempted with is food when he's hungry? And this offer has worked on every other human being that this choice has been laid out before. Each time they've been deceived. Each time they've given in and eaten from that counterfeit feast. But Jesus is not like us. Jesus confronts the deceiver that defeated Adam and Eve. He masters the sin that was crouching to devour Cain. He rejects this offer of this false feast from the enemy and chooses to feast instead on the life that comes through God's word empowered by his spirit. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Later, Jesus says to his disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. I have life that you know nothing about. When we think of fasting for 40 days, I fasted for a day. I think that's the max before. I was hungry. When we think about fasting for 40 days, going out into the desert by yourself to be tempted, like this sounds like maybe the last thing on my list of things I want to do. We probably view that as a state of total weakness. But here we don't see a frail Jesus. We see strength that comes through his dependence on God's word, through the power of God's spirit. We see true strength coming forward in total humility and dependence. It is then and only then that the enemy is thwarted And his deception does not work on Jesus. He rejects this meal. Jesus is the one who overcomes. Jesus succeeds where every other human fails. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus makes a way for us to be set free from the lies and the deception of the enemy. He has the power to undo our appetites for sin and that we no longer sit under God's judgment when we follow him in his ways, when we place our trust in him, when our life is hidden in him. Instead, we are invited to feast from God's table, to feast on God's life that he intended from the beginning, life to the full by receiving the life that Jesus lays down for us. The Bible is crazy. Like, as I sat in this this week and just seeing, there are so many passages I had to cut out 
And I'm sorry if it still felt like a lot. There's just so much of this same story playing out. And over and over and over again, it's Jesus that confronts these things, overcomes these things, and says, in me there is life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Whoever wants to know the Father, come after me. Part of receiving God's life coincides, though, with him putting to death in us our appetite for our ways instead of his. And this week, I've been forced, I guess. I've had the space. I've been confronted with, Matt, where do you still go to these counterfeit feasts? And I wonder if I've maybe even lost some of you along the way. Because if you're anything like me, sometimes I could be listening to a sermon and there's something that catches my mind or my heart. There's something that burrows down deep and hits a spot that I didn't want exposed. And then I rabbit trail with God talking about that thing, talking about that desire, talking about that posture, that relationship with that person, fighting that I want to hide, that I want to cover it up, that I don't want to go to him with it, that I don't know what it looks like to trust you with this, God. Like, this is the thing that keeps me from going and feasting with you, but over and over again, like, I don't know what it looks like to let it go. This week, I've been con confronted with the need I have to prove myself, the need to please people, to protect myself, to, that it's me against the world, that my anger is justified. And all of it starts with a lie. Not believing something true about God, about who he's made me to be, or about the world. And just like the garden, when I believe the lie, Death ensues, and it spreads to people that I love most. I hurt my wife. I hurt my son. I hurt all of you when I lead out of those lies and try to shepherd out of those things instead of leading out of confidence in Christ. And I wonder... Is there a lie that you've believed? And maybe it's like mine and maybe it's totally different. Is there a lie about comparison? That they will always be better than you. They will always know more about God than you. They will always be prettier than you are. They will always be a better father or mother or parent or spouse that you just don't stack up. Or maybe the comparison is that you view that you are better than these people. Maybe it's about sex or sexuality and that role that it plays in your identity and your worth and your value. Maybe it's about material things, riches, your 401k, or if you just had that job or if you just had that house and everything would be made right. 
Maybe the lie is checking Christian boxes to appear godly. Maybe the lie is that you are unloved. That you can only find relief through addiction. The good news is that we see Jesus confront the enemy head on and defeat the enemy head on. That in Jesus there is life. He comes to you in truth and in love to set you free from sin's deceitfulness and to make you into a new creation. And this is available to you, whether it be for the first time or for the umpteenth time as you follow Jesus. Because I find myself still battling the lies I believed when I was a teenager even though God has axed out some things of ways that I would display that I believe that lie, actions in my life, I still feel it in my heart and in my mind. I still have the need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. So this morning, what does it look like for God to expose a counterfeit beast that you've been delving in, that I've been delving in, and for us to not choose that tree anymore, but to choose life in him alone. The choice is set before us, church, to choose Jesus for the first time and to choose Jesus again and again and again. And it seems appropriate that then what Jesus gives his followers to remember him, to sit in this reality of what he's done, he gives them a meal. And he gives them a meal that somehow combines death and life into one tree. That through Jesus' death, his body broken, his blood shed, he makes a way for us to receive life, for us to be made whole, for us to be united to God, for us to be washed clean, for our sins to be remembered no more.